Well, we have been looking since the beginning of the year on how to keep the balance in our lives. I mean, this is the 2016, it's time to take a, a serious look at, at uh, where we go from here and how we proceed from here. And uh, we're looking at Second Peter chapter 2 and uh, verses there, <clears throat> beginning really in, in verse 3. But uh, we've already examined the matter of virtue or a spirit of excellence in our lives, what it means to have excellence uh, in our lives, and how that in everything, whatever our hand finds to do, we should do it heartily as unto the Lord and, and not unto men. And we have seen that in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1. Last week we talked about knowledge and how knowledge is vital. And uh, next week we're going to talk about sheer determination, steadfastness. But today, we're going to look at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 6, or the first part of verse 6. We're going to speak of self-control. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, between ages of 20 20 and age 50, the average person, the average person spends about 28,000 hours eating. That's the average person. Some of us break that average, but uh, <clears throat> that's the average person. That's 1,160 days or more than that eating. Our daily schedules are often planned around meal times. Business deals are, are cut. Business deals are cut and among people and they do, when they do lunch together. Foods have been adapted to every aspect of our culture. There's frozen dinners, there's drive-up windows, there's tailgate parties. And each day, anywhere from 45 to 125 million Americans are dieting. They are on some kind of a, a diet, probably more so at this time of year. At the time that he published his book, Fast Food Nation, Eric Schlossler stated that the annual health care cost in the U.S. stemming from obesity was approaching $240 billion. Now, that was about 15 years ago, $240 billions. And Americans spent between $35 billion, uh, around $35 billion on health uh, or weight loss programs and diet products. In 2010, the diet industry was $61 billion annually in 2010. Who knows what it is today? And since Oprah got on it, uh, it's really going to go crazy. I said that because this morning, as we look at a balance point or balance point number three of the seven points of balance, we come to the subject of self-control. And all of us want to be led of the Holy Spirit of God. All of us want to live our lives led of the Spirit. That being said, Simon Peter tells us that we need to exercise a certain measure of our own self-control in life. We have to be able to control ourselves with the help of the Lord, with the help of the Holy Spirit, but there's no question about it. We must control ourselves. Now, this isn't a message about diet and exercise, although I guess it it could be. This is a message about managing ourselves spiritually and doing a and and coming to a better outcome in every aspect of our lives because we have learned what it takes to have self-control. Our text, as we said, has remained the same. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, His divine power has granted to us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That was the first one. That means a spirit of excellence. And with virtue, knowledge. We looked at knowledge last week. There's many ways to gain knowledge. The main knowledge is the knowledge of God and his word. And then to knowledge with self-control. Now, self-control, that's not a term that needs a lot of explanation. Just about everybody would know what the term self-control is. I'm something of an expert on it. And the reason that I am is because when I was in elementary school, every report card, the teacher wrote a special note to my parents, and that special note told them that their son lacked self-control. And so I learned a lot about self-control and the, the lack thereof. I'm something of an expert on the lack of self-control and thus on self-control. That being said, I'm going to control myself this morning to only three areas of spiritual self-control, which if we master, we'll be well on our way to keeping the balance of life that will lead us to an abundance in faith and abundance and balance in our lives. Here's the first word we're going to look at as we look at the matter of self-control. It's the word integrity. Integrity is a serious and an important word in every person's life, especially the life of a believer. To have integrity is to have strong moral principles. In a world that's driven by greed and instant gratification, one and a half billion dollar Powerball, the effort needed to have integrity is almost lost. Very few people today really, or I should say far fewer people today, really pursue that which is integrity. Integrity used to be the norm. You used to be able to count on everybody having integrity, or most everybody that you encounter having integrity. Today, when somebody has integrity, they're celebrated as being rare, almost being a hero. What has happened to us? Why are people in a free society, particularly Christian people, so challenged by the simple act of doing the right thing? Why is it so hard to do the right thing? John Stott was a leader of the evangelical Christian movement in England. He died in 2011. He was age 90. Dr. Stott's last bit of advice to his assistant before he died was simply this. I want you to think about it. He said, do the hard thing. Stott believed that choosing the easy path, the road most taken, the path of least resistance, only ends in mediocrity. It, or mediocrity. It, it could come with praise. You could be praised for just doing the easy thing. But that being said, <clears throat> integrity is built by doing the hard thing. And so I think it's fair to ask ourselves, do I have the integrity to do the hard thing? Do I have the integrity to take the path that most others do not take? Has the self-control in your life produced an ability 
to take the hard path. I want to give you four areas of self-control that can build people like you and me into men and women of integrity, into people who will be able to take the hard path. The first word is the word patient, or maybe patience. That's the first thing that we have to learn if we're going to have integrity. Psalm 25, 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. A beautiful, wonderful, powerful verse. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Do you ever have a, <clears throat> a verse come to you? Just a verse, you find a verse or a verse finds you? Here's a verse that found me when I was in seminary. Many, many years ago, I've been a pastor now for 40 years. Prior to that, I was in seminary, and uh, I was uh, in youth ministry. <clears throat> but as, while I was in seminary, I was facing some challenges and hoping for certain opportunities to open up, and God gave me this verse. In essence, he said, Randy, uh, rather than push too hard, <clears throat> what you should do is wait for me, and then you'll have the integrity of knowing that you let me open the door. You'll have the uprightness of knowing that you didn't force your way <clears throat> into a, a situation. Now, a naturally impatient person, I <clears throat> didn't want to do that, but I learned that it is possible to wait on the Lord. And when we do, our moral uprightness <clears throat> is preserved, even made better. Yesterday, I had uh, a young woman from my past uh, who was uh, a person that uh, I was her pastor when she was a little girl in Nashville. <clears throat> she's now, excuse me, <clears throat> she's now 35 years old. She asked to be my friend on Facebook. And so I <clears throat> friended her on Facebook and she wrote, uh, Pastor Ray, uh, it's so good to see you and, uh, uh, and, and to see your family and, and so on. And she gave her name and she said, uh, I'm still waiting for Mr. Wright. And uh, this, this girl, by the way, just as an aside, is truly a beautiful, uh, a stunningly beautiful uh, uh, woman and very talented, very gifted. Uh, she uh, sings. I believe she plays the piano. She's a very gifted <clears throat> individual. And I wrote back to her in a private message because, you know, some, some people don't have the good sense not to write everything they know on somebody's wall. So I wrote back to her in a private message, and I said to her, I said, now, uh, ooh, I almost gave her name. I said, um, so-and-so, uh, it is so good to connect with you, and it's wonderful to see you and your family on, on Facebook and da-da-da. Now, as for waiting for Mr. Wright, it's far better to wait for Mr. Wright than to have Mr. Wrong and your life be ruined. And so I would say to you that God's timing is perfect. So wait and wait and wait and wait until God brings the right person to you. And then it will be the right time. You know, one of the hardest things that we do is to be patient and to wait on the Lord. 
And do you know why many of us lose our integrity? Is because we jump the gun on the Lord and we do things outside of his leading and outside of his will. Patience is something that all of us should learn, and we should keep learning it and relearning it throughout our lives. It should start very early. My little granddaughter, Emerson, is, or one of my little granddaughters, I have two granddaughters now and two grandsons, but my little granddaughter, Emerson, is just about three months away from being two years old. And like all toddlers, she has her moments of making demands, things that she, she wants, Now, for a child that's 20 months old, she's extraordinarily verbal. She really is. She's extraordinarily verbal. I won't bore you, although I would really love to just stop this sermon and tell you all about her right now. But she's extraordinarily verbal. However, uh, in her times of demands, she's not verbal at all. She whines and she cries when she's trying to get something that she wants right then or not have something happen that is happening right then. My son Paul, her dad, tells her, he says, look at daddy, look at daddy. And she'll look at daddy and he'll say, be, and she goes, patient. (laughs) And then all is well, at least for a while, until she gets impatient again. The lesson of patience is something that has to be learned early and has to be repeated often, and the, the threat of impatience never goes away. Patience is a building block to our integrity and a key ingredient in self-control. Here's something else that will help in matters of building our moral principles, and that is to be prayerful. We should be patient and prayerful. In an effort to please God in all things, here's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Sometimes we find ourselves in a, a dilemma of moral principles. The best thing to do in that time is to be patient and to pray and ask God for help. And he will help you. So we shouldn't hesitate to ask God for help. Now, if you don't ask God for help, and if you can't be patient, then you're fighting a losing battle that's going to challenge your integrity, which is going to affect your self-control. Why would anyone who believes in Jesus Christ want to live a life that he cannot bless? So why wouldn't we just be patient and prayerful and wait on God? And to have integrity in our lives, we should add this one more thing, and that is to be purposeful. Patient, prayerful, and purposeful, those three things plus one more I'm going to give you, will yield a measure of integrity in your life, which will help you in areas of self-control, which will give you the balance that you need to walk the tightrope of this life that we're living. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best, be purposeful in that. Many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Now my question is this, after having read that, that book and others, to what purpose are you living your life? What is the purpose of your life? 
What is the purpose? Why are you living the life that you're living? You say, well, I don't have a purpose. Oh, yes, you do. Everyone is born with a purpose and born again to be able to find that purpose. If you're living, you have a purpose. If you're born again, you can find that purpose. I would encourage you to find your purpose and live it and do it. To build self-control in our lives, we must pursue moral excellence and integrity. We have to have a purpose. If you do that, you'll stand out. Now, let me say this. You shouldn't stand out. That ought to be the norm, but you would stand out. If you're a person that is a, a man or a woman of integrity, and people know about you that you're patient, people know about you that you're prayerful, that you're purposeful in your life, that people will, will look at you in a different way and they'll say, now that person right there is unusual. That person ought to be very usual, but in today's world, that person is unusual. And here's the thing that you can add to that, the word purity. If you are patient, prayerful, purposeful, and pure, then you are a person of integrity. And if you are a person of integrity, you can achieve self-control in your walk. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I, I, I don't often ask you to write things down. We have got, uh, if you follow along on our, uh, with the messages on your smartphone or your tablet, and you can do that here, and there's, there was a, uh, uh, there's an app for that, and, and uh, you can get that app for your phone. But if, <clears throat> if you uh, don't always write things down, I want to ask you to write this sentence down. It is a long climb back to integrity once our moral principles are stained. It's a long climb back to integrity once our moral principles are stained. In a world that has become so blatantly sexual and considering all of the deviations from the creation and plan of God, maintaining the moral high ground is a challenge to everyone and not just the younger generation. You know, a lot of times, uh, teenagers, I, I'll, I'll be preaching like this, and I know what the congregation's thinking. They think, boy, I'm glad these young people are hearing this. You college students, they, that's what the congregation thinks. I'm glad these young people are hearing this. Well, I want to tell you something. Every gray hair in this room needs to hear this too. Because I will say to you that purity is not just a challenge to a young person. It's a challenge <clears throat> to all people. All people are challenged. And, and before, uh, I, I would ask you this. Are you maintaining the moral high ground in your life? And give you this piece of advice. That before you say yes when you should say no. Think of the hill to climb once you've stepped over that boundary. In the legal profession, Tom, we talk about slippery slopes. Right, Samantha? This is a slippery slope. What means is once you've stepped on that, you're going to keep on going down, and it's a hard to climb back from that slippery slope. A lot of bad things can happen once you step over that line and you're on that slippery slope. Well, so it is with moral integrity. Once you step over the line, it's a slippery slope. 
And it's hard to climb back up. Keep yourself unstained by the world. So at the balance point of self-control, we start with integrity. How is integrity achieved? That's achieved by being patient and prayerful and purposeful and pure. Here's something else that will help us, and that is stewardship. If we're going to have self-control, we must have integrity and understand stewardship. Let me explain what stewardship is. Some of you already think you know, but you probably don't. Stewardship is the understanding that we are stewards or managers of somebody else's belongings. Whether you work for the state or you are Donald Trump, all that you have is a gift from God. All that you have is a gift from God. I was interested in a question that was put to Donald Trump in the Republican debate the other night and asking, if, if you uh, become president, are you willing to put your assets in a blind trust? I'm going to tell you something. All of our assets are in a blind trust. <laughs> They're all in a blind trust. We don't know what tomorrow may hold. We don't know what's going to happen <clears throat> the next day. Everything that we have, everything that we hope to have, everything that we're going to have, and everything that we once had came from God. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. To achieve a balance in life, you have to come to a place of understanding that what you own belongs to God. And you have a responsibility to to please Him with how you manage what He owns that you think you own. Now, how would God have you to exercise self-control in matters of stewardship? Well, first of all, He would have you to understand a word that none of us understand much anymore. That's the word contentment. He would have you to understand that. This isn't about how much we have, but it's about what's required to make us content. Some marriages are unhappy, and they're unhappy for one main reason, and that is because one or both of the marriage partners are not content with life and what they've been given in life. They're not content with their partner. They're not content with their their personal effects. They're not content with their position. They're not content with with the disposition of the part. They're not content with anything. They're just discontent. They're discontent about what they have in this life. I will be the first person to say that God has given the Ray family more than is required to be content. And if, if the Ray family had less than they have now, it would be an adjustment to be content with less. Adjustment or not, I am to be content if I'm going to control myself. There's a verse for that, 1 Timothy 6, 7, and actually two verses, 8. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Verse 8 says, food and clothing or cover 
is enough for contentment. In the King James Version, it says raiment. The word that's used in your King James Bible is raiment. The Greek word means covering. Here's the way that works. If you have a roof over your head, clothes on your back, and food in your stomach, you have enough to be content, according to the Bible. By biblical definition, that is enough to be content. Well, that ain't enough for me. (laughs) Well, it may not be. But by biblical definition, that's enough. That's what the Bible says you can be content with. There's no mention of transportation. There's no mention of smartphones. There's no mention of golf clubs. Sadly, there's no mention of vacations. There's no mention of any of that. If you want to be a good steward, just see what God has given you and appreciate it. Appreciate what God has given you. All that God has given you. Appreciate it. Here's the second thing in stewardship, and that is the art of being careful. Content and careful. Luke 14, 28 is a verse we're going to see again next week. It says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Now here is a line that is hard to define. Truthfully, if you're going to make any progress in life, there's going to have to be a certain amount of risk. There's no way around that. No one can play it safe all the time and get anywhere. There's, there's no way around that. Leadership, entrepreneurship, simply getting ahead is going to require some spirit of adventure, some willingness to step out on faith. But that's the way we're supposed to live. We walk by faith and not by sight. That being said, you must know in advance that there is a cost for building anything in your life, and you should move carefully with wisdom and with a deliberate sense of, I am going somewhere, this is where I'm going. There's a cost. You know, there's a cost for building a marriage. In September, September the 2nd, in fact, Mrs. Ray and I will have been married for 43 years. We were sweethearts in the fifth grade. She wouldn't leave me alone. And she chased me and chased me and chased me until I caught her. It has taken work and effort. And there has been a cost involved in building a marriage. And it still is a costly and an effort uh, Effort some, that's not a right word, but I just coined it. It's, it's something that takes effort every single day. If you're going to bring children into the world, it's going to cost you. I heard that. Well, I mean, it's going to cost you beyond when it's costing you. Some of you that have kids at home, you say, man, I, you know, I think that when my kids are up on their own, they sure are expensive. They will never stop costing you. Financially, emotionally, any other way. Your parents, those of you who are adults and have parents, your parents are still invested and investing in your life. You, 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 getting an education, committing to the military, whatever you set out to do, there is a cost. Now, you know what our problem is, don't you? 
much of our world today wants to have a life without cost. They want those who have counted the cost and set out to build the tower to pay for their decision to do nothing and want everything at no cost. That's the way, the way of the world today. We should be careful in life, but we should also <clears throat> go after counting, the, after counting the cost. We should begin to build our lives. And before I get too hardcore, before you think, boy, preacher, you, you sound tough this morning, here's another word in the stewardship piece of keeping the balance of self-control, and that is to be charitable. Luke chapter eight and, uh, 6 and verse 38, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. No one will ever achieve the balance of life without understanding giving. You just won't. Now, there are many ways and reasons to give. This is not a message on tithing, but I will tell you that this, that tithing is a biblical principle that started in the Old Testament, held over into the New Testament. Tithing is proportionate giving as God has prospered us since he owns it all anyway. He says, worship me, give back 10% to me. That's what God says do. And that is being just obedient to the Lord. Beyond that, we should be charitable. Beyond that, we should give. Here we encourage you to give to missions over and above your tithe. But you should do even more than that. We should give to, to others. We should give to the homeless and to, to veterans and to children's projects and, and more and more. <clears throat> and the reason we give is because we love. And the longer we live, the more we love and the more we really want to give. If we mature normally and in a balanced way, we reach a point in life where we understand that giving is the thing. Those of you who've <clears throat> walked this earth many times, you know that you reach a point where when Christmas time comes and somebody says, hey, what do you want for Christmas? You say, eh, I don't really want anything. But I'll tell you what you do want. You want to give people you love something that they want, something that they would be delighted in. I'm the king of the inappropriate. When my grandson was seven years old, I gave him a Razor motorbike, electric motorbike that was rated for 13-year-olds because I wanted him to have it. This year, we, he's eight years old, so we gave him a more practical gift, gave him a baseball bat and a drone. Not the one you gave me either. If we mature normally and in a balanced way, we're going to understand the importance of giving. And finally, we gain, uh, uh, and, and, and we finally gain an experiential knowledge of this verse from Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's what we're looking at. We're looking at what it means to have a balance in life and how self-control is a balance point. To achieve self-control, we must live a life with integrity and we must understand stewardship in life. And there's one more thing, and that is faithfulness. 
To have self-control is to be faithful even when you don't feel like it. It's going to work when you didn't get a good night's sleep. It's, it's facing a difficult situation because you're the one to face it and, and taking the responsibility for facing it. In fact, that is one of the points of faithfulness, is taking responsibility. Much is said today about loving ourselves and be true to yourself. And you just look, before you love anybody else, you need to love yourself and, and all of that. And I'm for having good self-esteem and loving myself and, and, and all of that kind of thing. That being said, I'm not for it at the expense of loving other people the way we're commanded to love them. We have a responsibility to love other people. I have a responsibility to love my family more than I love me. I was talking to one of my friends yesterday about my grandchildren, and and I mentioned a grandchild, and I said, I will tell you this, that if there were an absolute, clear, matter-of-fact choice today, either you live and your grandchild dies, or your grandchild lives and you die, it would be no choice whatsoever. And the reason is because I have a sense of responsibility. We have a responsibility, not just to our family. We have a responsibility to our country. We have a responsibility to our friends. We have a responsibility to our church. We have a response. There's your responsibility that has had a, a, it had a slow leak and finally it had a blowout. People just do not seem to feel like they have a responsibility to their church anymore. However, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look, as a pastor, one who's been a pastor for 40 years, I, I have to say that my tolerance for consumer Christianity is just about gone. There's, there is a sense of commitment that is more important than really anything else. Certainly we come to worship God, to church to worship God and learn from his word and, and so on. But make no mistake about it, we have a responsibility to the rest of the church family. I have a responsibility to you. You have a responsibility to the person sitting next to you, the person uh, in the pew three rows behind you. You have a responsibility for people that walk in these doors for the first time. I I met a family back there that, that came here for the first time today. We all have a responsibility to them. We have a responsibility that is bigger than just what is convenient for us. I could go on and on, but the, the point is, <clears throat> the point is that we have to decide that we have a responsibility in life that is beyond ourselves. Faithfulness is a responsibility. The fact is, faithfulness is a requirement. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Seriously, what, what can we do with that? I mean, if, if we just said, you know what? It's a requirement in life for me to be faithful. I was talking to a sheriff's deputy the other night that's about ready to retire. And uh, he said, uh, I said, when are you retiring? He gave me a date. It was in May. And, and he said, about half that time between now and then is vacation. That I, I got to use. And I said, they, don't, they, they don't, uh, won't pay you back your vacation. He said, no, they don't pay back the vacation. I understand that. 
He said, now, they do pay sick days. And he said, I heard him on sick days. I said, you did? And uh, this is really a great guy. Some of you would know him if I called his name, but I won't. He said, yeah, I had 5,000 hours built up in sick days. He said, they wouldn't pay me all of it. They'll pay only half the sick days. I said, you got 2,500 hours in sick, sick time paid to you in a check? He said, yeah. I said, that's more than a year's salary. In a 40-hour work week, there's 2,080 uh, work hours. In a 40-hour work week, he got more than a year's salary. You know why? Because he was faithful. I imagine he came to work sometimes and he didn't feel like it. We can all do that. We ought to present ourselves to be that kind of a person. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I want to assure you that living for Christ and being faithful to Him is not a bummed out and a boring thing. It's something that we can be faithful to and we can be responsible to. And when we do, we have a tremendous sense of reward. The Bible says that we're all going to appear before a judgment. Now, there's two judgments. Let me tell you the one that you don't want to be in. That's called the great white throne judgment judgment. Don't ever get all excited and talking to somebody about the judgment and say, I just can't wait to be at that great white throne judgment. That is not cool, folks. It's just the opposite. The great white throne judgment is the judgment of the unsaved just to see what the dial is going to be on how hot hell is, so to speak. It's not good. The judgment that we want is the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is that judgment where we are judged for reward. Let me just read you very quickly this little, these passages that will give you a, a concept of what it means. In Luke 19, 13, Jesus is giving a parable about the judgment to come. Calling ten of his servants, he gave to them ten minas, that's bits of money, and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, skipping down to verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained doing business. The first came before him and said, Lord, your mina has made uh, 10 more minas. And he said to him, well done, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the parable goes on from there. But the, <clears throat> the point is that there was reward after a time of being faithful. Now, I want us to all have the balance of life. I want us to have this sense of self-control. But in order to have self-control, we must pursue integrity, learn how to wait on the Lord. We must pursue stewardship, understand that what we have is not our own, and pursue this idea of faithfulness and be faithful to God because He wants us to, not because we feel like it. And all of that adds up to one of the most important balance points in any Christian's life, self-control.